to the show more than you can chew i'm your host tiffany moore yes uh it's a different book guys this is me this is inside of my head i can't i i don't know how to read one book at a time that's never been my thing i just it's not possible for me to do so (laughs) We're starting a new book, um, and I, and I definitely want to go back to the Abby Jacobson book, but I, I don't know. I I tried the next chapter and I just can't. I I need to switch to a different book, and maybe we'll go back and forth. But like, I, I I've never been able to read one book all the way through at once, and why start now? Um, Is everybody sufficiently losing their fucking minds out there? Yeah? Okay, good, good. This book, Manic by Terry Chaney, was one of the most pivotal, transformative books I've ever read in my life. I think I found this book when I was maybe like 24, 25. Um, It was the first thing I'd ever read in my entire life where I resonated with every single line of this book and I've read this book so many times but I haven't read it in a really long time. It's one of the most fascinating books I've ever read in my life. Um, It's about manic depression and this was the first book I ever read that was just like she is saying every single thought in my head so perfectly to how I feel it. Like it just felt so validating to read this book and to just know that someone else was experiencing what I was experiencing and it it could be categorized into something like I just wasn't a crazy person. Um, And oddly enough, I feel like this is somehow going to tie into the shift and be helpful for people. And I just love this. You guys are going to love this fucking book. It's seriously so good. It's so 
interesting and well-written. Um, so yeah, we're, we're going to do things a little different for this book. Like I said, I really want to go back to, we might start another book uh, halfway through this one. I don't really know. That's just how I am. And I'm, I'm being as authentic on this podcast as I possibly can be. So this is me. I can't read more, you know, one book all the way through. So for the three deep breaths today, I'm not going to light a candle. I don't think right now. We're going to do, um, we're going to switch it up a little bit and we're going to do, I think it's called Dragon's Breath, Lion's Breath in yoga, or like Breath of Fire. It's also referred to as, and what you're going to do is you're going to take a really deep inhale. And when you exhale, you're going to open your mouth as wide as you can, stick your tongue out as far as you can and push it out. So it's going to sound like, <laughs> okay, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to take three deep breaths and we're going to push out the exhale to sound like that mouth all the way open, tongue all the way out. Okay, so just get a place where you can kind of center yourself, take some time out for yourself in the fuckery, which is this world. All right, we're going to inhale. Breath of fire, mouth wide open, tongue out, breathe it out. You can get real angry with this one too. Inhale. Breath of fire out. One more. That is just so detoxifying. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I still feel a little like... And shake it all out yet where I can get to a point where I can just kind of chill. So we're just going to fuck, fuck. Just we're going to say fuck, 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 fuck. Wherever you are, you can sing fuck, fuck, fuck. Fuck yourself, fuck yourself, fuck. Fuck yourself, fuck. However you need to let it out. Fuck, 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 fuck you Fuck you! My neighbors probably think I'm definitely losing my fucking mind, but fuck, 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 let it out, just fuck, fuck you, fuck yourself, fuck, fuck. All right, that's better. Okay, get some water. All right, I feel like I can do this now. <clears throat> okay. There's just a short preface that I'm going to read. And then we'll get into chapter one here. All right, so this is the preface of Manic by Teddy Cheney. If you come with me on this journey, I think a word of warning is in order. Manic depression is not a safe ride. It doesn't go from point A to point B in a familiar, friendly pattern. It's chaotic, unpredictable. 
You never know where you're headed next. I wanted this book to mirror the disease, to give the reader a visceral experience. That's why I've chosen to tell my life story ep episodically, rather than any, in any chronological order. It's truer to the way I think. When I look back, I rarely even remember events in terms of date or sequence. Rather, I remember what emotional state I was in. Manic? Depressed? Suicidal? Euphoric? Life for me is identified not by time, but by mood. I've tried to stay as true as I can to what I remember, but mental illness creates its own vibrant reality, which is so convincing sometimes, it's hard to figure out exactly what is real and what's not. It gets even harder as time goes by, because memory is the first casualty of manic depression. When I'm manic, all I remember is the moment. When I'm depressed, all I remember is the pain. The surrounding details are lost on me. But the illness, ironically, has impaired me far less than the treatment. I've long since lost track of all the psychotropic medications I've had to take over the years, or the nature and number of their side effects. More devastating, however, was the course of electric shock, electroshock therapy, ECT, I went through in 1994. ECT can be a great help as a last resort treatment, but it's notorious for wiping out memory. For a while, I forgot even the simplest things. What part of town I lived in, my mother's maiden name, what scissors were for. Some of this was eventually restored, but I still have trouble recalling past events and retaining the memories of new ones. The world has never seemed as sharp and clear as it did before ECT. In some cases, the events I describe can be documented by police or hospital records, although some of the hospitals no longer exist. I've elected the, to change the names of most of the people and institutions depicted to protect their identities. The experiences I've written about are often difficult and private, and I prefer just to tell my own story. Telling my story is what's kept me alive, even when death was its most seductive. That's why I've chosen to share my personal history, although some of it is still painful to recall, even through a haze of medication, mental illness, and electroshock therapy. But the disease thrives on shame, and shame thrives on silence, and I've been silent long enough. This book, this book represents what I remember. This book is my truth. Chapter 1 <clears throat> I didn't tell anyone I was going to Santa Fe to kill myself. I figured that was more information than people needed. Plus, it might interfere with my travel plans if anyone found out the truth. People always mean well, but they don't understand that when you're seriously depressed, suicidal ideation can be the only thing that keeps you alive. Just knowing there's an out, even if it's bloody, even if it's permanent, makes the pain almost bearable for one more day. Five months had passed since my father's death from lung cancer, and the world was not a fit place to live in. As long as daddy was still alive, it made sense to get up every morning, depressed or not. There was a war on. But the day I gave the order to titrate this morphine to a lethal dose, the fight lost all meaning to me. So I wanted to die. I saw nothing odd about this desire, even though I was only 38 years old. It seemed like a perfectly natural response under the circumstances. I was bone tired, terminally weary, and death sounded like a vacation to me, a holiday, a somewhere else, which is all I really wanted. 
When I was offered the chance to leave LA to take an extended trip by myself to Santa Fe, I was ecstatic. I leased a charming little hacienda just off Canyon Road, the, the artsiest part of town, bursting with galleries, jazz clubs, and eccentric cat-ridden bookstores and cafes. It was a good place to live, especially in December when the snow fell thick and deep on the cobblestones, muffling the street noise so thoroughly that the city seemed to dance its own soft shoe. There was an exceptional amount of snowfall that particular December. Everything seemed to study in contrast. The fierce round des desert sun blazing while I shivered, blue-white snow shadows against thick red adobe walls, and always, everywhere I looked, the sagging spine of the old city pressing up against the sleek curves of the new. But the most striking contrast by far was me, thrilled to tears simply to be alive in such surroundings, and determined as ever to die. I never felt so bipolar in my life. The mania came at me in four day spurts, four days of not eating, not sleeping, barely sitting in one place for more than a few minutes at a time. Four days of constant shopping in Canyon Road is all about commerce, however artsy its facade. And four days of indiscriminate nonstop talking, first to everyone I knew on the West Coast, then to anyone still awake on the East Coast, then to Santa Fe itself, whoever would listen. The truth was, I didn't just need to talk. I was afraid to be alone. There were things hovering in the air around me that didn't want to be remembered. The expression on my father's face when I told him it was stage four cancer, already metastasized, the bewildered look in his eyes when I couldn't take away the pain, and the way those eyes kept watching me at the end, trailing my every move, fixed on me, begging for the comfort I wasn't able to give. I never thought I could be haunted by anything so familiar, so beloved, as my father's eyes. Mostly, however, I talked to men. Canyon Road has a number of extremely lively, extremely friendly bars and clubs, all of which are within walking distance of my hacienda. It wasn't hard for a redhead with a ready smile and a feverish glow in her eyes to strike up conversation and then continue the conversation well into the early morning hours at his place or mine. The only word I couldn't seem to say was no. I ease my conscience by reminding myself that manic sex isn't really intercourse. It's discourse. Just another way to ease the insatiable need for contact and communication. In place of words, I simply spoke with my skin. I had long since decided that Christmas Eve would be my last day on this earth. I chose Christmas Eve precisely because it had meaning and beauty, nowhere more so than in Santa Fe. With its enchanting festival of the Farolitos, every Christmas Eve, carolers come from all over the world to stroll the lantern-lit streets until dawn. All doors are open to them, and the air is pungent with the smell of warm cider and piñon. I wanted to die at such a moment, when the world was at its best, when I could offer up my heart to God and say, thank you, truly, for all of it. It's not that I'm ungrateful. It's just that I'm not capable anymore of the joy a night like this deserves. Joy is, joy is blasphemy now that daddy's dead. Your world is simply wasted on me. And that, I think, is reason enough to die. This unwritten prayer was the only suicide note I intended to leave. Christmas Eve dawned bright and cold with the snow on th in the forecast for early that afternoon. I was on the fourth day of my last manic spree, which meant my mind was speeding so fast I had to make shorthand lists just to keep up with it. 
I'd already carefully laid out what I was going to wear as my farewell attire, a long black cashmere dress, not to be macabre, but because cashmere would never wrinkle and black would hide any unexpected blood or vomit. I'd also laid out all the pills I'd, I'd saved up over the past year, including all the heavy-duty cancer meds my father had never lived long enough to take. They were neatly arranged in probable order of lethality and grouped into manageable mouthfuls, approximately 10 pills per swallow. Counting them one last time, I realized I had well over 300 assorted tablets and capsules, which meant an awful lot of swallows. What I didn't have was sufficient tequila to wash them all down. Water wasn't, in, water wasn't an option. I needed the interaction. So it couldn't be helped. I pulled on my gloves, hat, and coat, grabbed my car keys off the counter, and dashed off to the nearest liquor store, praying it was open. The snow was falling just heavily enough to slow my progress, but I was in luck. Not only were they still open, but my favorite tequila, Le Pies, in the cobalt blue bottle was on sale. I bought a fifth, then turned around and bought two more. There seemed little point, after all, in economizing. The old sales clerk, who had waited on me many times that December, held out his hand and wished me a Merry Christmas. I shook his hand briefly, then turned back and gave him a big hug and kiss on both cheeks. Merry Christmas, I said, as something cold and sharp twanged inside me. I had promised myself no goodbyes. The snow was falling thick and fast by the time I got back to the hacienda, the car heater wasn't working very well, and I was shivering so hard I could barely open my purse to get the house key. I hated being cold, rummaging through my purse with half-numbed fingers. I wondered if the body ever felt the grave, and if that final chill ever truly left the bones. Five frustrating minutes later, I realized the key wasn't anywhere in my purse, nor was it in my car, nor was it lying outside in the snow. It was, quite simply somewhere else, and I was locked out of my most desperate dream. Fortunately, my cell phone was in the glove compartment, charged and ready. A helpful operator took pity on me and managed to find the only local locksmith working on Christmas Eve. But it would be at least an hour, the locksmith told me, before he could even make it over to Canyon Road. Better bundle up and stay warm, he said. I'll do better than that, I thought, uncorking the bottle of Lapis. I took a long, deep swallow and started singing Christmas carols alphabetically to myself. I'd been around the alphabet three times and back again by the time the locksmith finally arrived, a good hour and a half. I was singing at the top of my lungs by then and didn't hear his key tapping against the ice-encrusted window. All I saw was a pair of red-rimmed eyes under big, white, bushy brows through my windshield. And I was drunk enough to think of Santa Claus. Door, I said, pointing. It's locked. While he fiddled with the key, with one key after another, I asked him all about his work, about life in Santa Fe, about life in general. The old manic craving to know everything was fierce upon me, but luckily I'd found a willing participant. In fact, I could barely ask my questions before he answered them, at length and in depth. It hit me that he wasn't talking even faster than I was, and that his answers didn't sound quite right. There was something wrong with him, something slightly but significantly off. I looked at him while he was talking and realized that he was younger than I thought and practically toothless. A single front tooth was framed by the two stragglers at the bottom. The rest of the gum was raw and black, like a th thick slice of calf's liver. And his eyes weren't just red, they were bloody. The whites shot through with virulent streaks. 
Even though the heavy haze of even through the heavy haze of tequila, I heard a warning bell go off. Step back, I said to myself, get formal, slow it down. But we were already well into the stage rhythm. Me asking, him answering, me listening hard with all of my body. I didn't know how to stop it and was worried about offending him. Before I could figure out what to do, his supply of keys ran out. He was stumped. The only thing left to do was break the window. I loved the idea of smashing glass at the moment. I wanted to do it, but he refused. Wrapping his hand in a greasy old rag, he told me to stand back and close my eyes. Then he bashed the pane once, twice, and on the third blow, the glass tinkled into the floor, onto the tile floor. There's nothing quite like breaking something. The law, a pane of glass, whatever, to embolden a manic mood. This calls for a drink, I said, as he unlocked and opened the door. I laid it all out, shot glasses, lime wedges, a shaker of salt, and a newly opened fifth of tequila. Since this was probably the last toast I would ever make, I wanted to say something profound. But more than that, I wanted the drink. Here's to breaking through, I said. When we clinked our glasses, I saw a patch of blood on his shirt sleeve. You must have cut yourself on the window, I told him. Sit down and I'll take care of it. It's nothing, he said, pulling his arm away. Sit down, I repeated. Two years of taking care of an increasingly infantile father had given me a competent, no-nonsense air of authority when it came to nursing. He sat down, started unbuttoning his cuff, then stopped. I, I can't, he said. A lady like you shouldn't see this. I've seen blood before, I said, laughing. It's not that. I'm sorry, I said. Are you burned? No, he said, squirming. Scarred? Not really. I reached over and put my hand on his sleeve. Then don't be silly. You're bleeding all over my table. Without looking at me, he finished unbuttoning his cuff and rolled his sleeve up, thereby exposing, from wrist to bicep, the single greatest display of pornographic tattooing I had ever seen on one man's body. I'm like this all over, he said. I used to do drugs. My judgment wasn't so hot back then. Inadvertently, his bicep flexed, sending the fat couple engraved across it into a copulating spasm. I felt my face flush red, but I couldn't look away. It was grotesque, but mesmerizing in a freakish carnival sideshow way. And strangely innocent, as devoid of sexual appeal as the Sunday funnies. I couldn't help myself. I burst out laughing and told him I'd seen far worse on my travels. He didn't respond, nor would he meet my eye. I started to clean the small cut on his upper forearm, hoping to relax him, but if anything, the contact made him more nervous. I'm so sorry, he kept saying. If I could, I'd burn them all off. It's okay, really. Hold still. No, I'm hideous, he insisted. Sometimes I just want to die. There are lots of easy ways to respond to a statement like that. Superficial, cheery bits of wisdom. But the irony slowed me down. Here I was, just waiting for this poor man to leave so I could finish killing myself by midnight. And I was supposed to reassure him of the sanctity of life? I poured us both another shot of tequila. He pushed his glass away and shook, shook his head. I saw a tear begin to form at the corner of his eye. Toothless, tattooed freak or not, he was suffering. And I knew only too well how that felt. I turned his arm over, exposing his wrist with its dancing, fully erect, horny de horned devil. 
I moistened the area with tequila, sprinkled it with a little salt, then bent down and licked between the tendons. Then I tossed back the shot, slammed the glass down on the table, and sucked on my lime. That's what I think of your silly tattoos, I said. Now have a drink. It's Christmas Eve. Manic intentions are always good. Manic consequences, almost never. I hadn't really meant anything sexual by my gesture. I just meant it kindly. One injured animal licking another's wounds. But then he stood up all at once and grabbed me by my arms, pulling me close to him and kissing me full on the mouth. I tried to break loose, but his grip was just too strong, his mouth too insistent. I didn't want sex. I just wanted to talk for a minute or two. Then I wanted to die. Plus his mouth tasted foul, dark and sour, and I couldn't get rid of the image of those liverish gums. A strong wave of revulsion swept through me, part tequila, part bile. I struggled once again to get free. I felt his hold loosen, took a dizzy step backward and heard no, the single word no, and I don't know which one of us said it before the world went black. I woke several hours later, sprawled across my bed, strangely stiff and sore and damp all over. I was alone. When I reached down to pull up the comforter, my fingers grazed my thighs and I felt a familiar cold, wet stickiness. I must have started my period, I thought, but then I smelled sweat. Not a sweat I knew, but a man's sweat. My inner thighs were throbbing, almost too sore to move, but I looked down at them. They were smeared with blood, fresh red bruises, just beginning to shine through. It really shouldn't have mattered so much. I would be leaving this body for good, I kept telling myself as soon as I could get up and swallow the waiting pills. But it did matter. It mattered a lot. In the same way that I wanted to leave a neat, spotless house, so I wanted a clean death. No loose, messy ends left trailing behind me, and especially no goodbyes, not even to my innocence. I'd already said more than my share of goodbyes. I didn't want to remember, and I certainly didn't want to feel. But unbidden, unwanted, the tears started to flow. With them, the memories came flooding back, the jagged edge of a broken blue bottle, waving back and forth before my eyes before it disappeared between my legs, a heavy arm straddling my windpipe, a quick shallow breath in my ear, and everywhere, the little devils dancing, rippling across the surface of his skin, my skin, ours. I looked down again at the mosaic of blood on the sheets. So much blood, it couldn't have all come from the lacerations on my thighs, which looked fairly shallow. No, there must have been a deeper wound. I reached down and gingerly probed between my legs. My fingers came up slick with fresh blood. There's always a deeper wound somewhere, if you look for it. I lay back onto the pillow, exhausted, but the physical pain didn't bother me anymore. It was dwarfed by a monstrous wave approaching, the tsunami that I'd been trying to avoid ever since I'd arrived in Santa Fe. I shut my eyes tight, I bit my lip, but I was overwhelmed by the realization that for the first time in my life, I was utterly and completely alone. If only daddy were alive, a voice inside of me pleaded. He would have saved me from all of this, not just the evil man with his jagged blue bottle, but the dangerous manias that led me to all these men and the suicidal depressions that followed. If only daddy were alive, none of this would have happened. There would be no Santa Fe. If only daddy were alive. The truth is, he wouldn't have saved me from any of it. 
not the manias, not the depressions, and none of the consequences, because he simply refused to believe that my disease even existed. It's all in your head, he would say to me, without the slightest tinge of irony. He didn't believe in psychiatry. He believed in bootstraps, as in, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and get on with your life. And in the end, he didn't even believe in that. He didn't even believe in me. The moment I had tried the hardest to forget suddenly snapped back into my life in full sensory detail, down to the sharp, astringent smell of the hospital room. It had been a long night for both of us. The cancer had spread to the bones by then, and even the morphine drip couldn't keep the pain at bay for very long. For the past 10 days, I'd been sleeping on a cot by my father's bedside and living out of a suitcase, hastily packed while I'd waited for the paramedics to arrive. I barely knew if it was day or night anymore, except by the number of pills that I took. I was dutifully counting out all of the morning supply, a good double handful, when I looked up and noticed my father's eyes upon me. I bent over the bed to kiss him good morning, but he turned his head abruptly away. What's wrong, Daddy? I asked. Do you want the nurse? He nodded, and I pressed the call button. His eyes fluttered and closed, but his breathing sounded regular, so I sat back down and continued counting out my pills. When the charge nurse arrived a few minutes later, I gently shook my father awake. She's here, Daddy, the nurse. What did you want? His eyes were cloudy, and his face looked odd. The skin bloodless and gray. But when he sat up and spoke to the nurse, his voice was surprisingly strong. He gestured towards the bedside table. There's a document in the top drawer there, he said, and I need a pen. The nurse opened the drawer and took out the paper. I knew what it was because I'd helped my father's lawyers get it witnessed, get it witnessed and notarized. The nurse pulled a pen from her pocket and handed it to my father along with the will. Then she turned to leave. No, you stay, he said. Someone should see this. With shaking, palsied fingers, he uncapped the pen and began to cross my name off every page in which it appeared. She's a drug addict, he said to the nurse. Just look at all those pills. The nurse looked at me. I still had my morning supply in my hand, and I instinctively tried to close my fingers around them. But there were far too many, and they all spilled on, out onto the floor. It's for manic depression, I started to explain, but my father stopped me. I put her through Vassar. I put her through law school, and all she is now is a goddamn drug addict. Who'd have believed it, my little girl? Then he lowered his head back onto the pillow and started to moan softly. The nurse, bless her, busied herself with the bedside tray. It's time for your medication now, she said to my father as she fed him dose after dose of brightly colored pills, a rainbow of pharmacology. Pretty, but no longer of much use. Exhausted from swallowing, he closed his eyes and slept. I was there when he woke a few hours later, and I was there when he died the following week. At his funeral, I prayed for the strength to forgive, forgive him of his faults, and I thought that I was, had succeeded. But flat on my back in Santa Fe, too bruised and too beaten to fight my own feelings anymore, I knew better. I could forgive my father for disinheriting me. I could forgive him for refusing to believe that I was ill. I could even forgive him for not protecting me from the world. How could he when he couldn't even protect himself? But I couldn't, no matter how hard I tried, forgive him for leaving me alone. A deep resonant bong 
chimed through my thoughts as the clock in the next room struck the half hour. Only 30 more minutes to midnight. Only 30 more minutes to die. Remembering had made me more eager than ever. Death wasn't the easy way. It was the only way out. It seemed to me, or else I would remember forever. Riding a sudden surge of energy, I jumped out of the bed, stumbling as the pain caught up to my senses. On the way to the bathroom, I fell once, hard, and almost stayed there on the, on the thick Berber carpet. But then I forced myself to stand up straight and start swallowing handful after handful of pills, tossed back with increasingly sloppy swigs of tequila. 25 minutes later, and three quarters of the way through my stockpile, I no longer felt the pain inside or out. My head started nodding in tacit submission, but I slapped my cheeks and chewed my tongue and dug my nails into my palms until the pain started, startled me awake again. Then I commanded my arm to keep on grabbing and my throat to keep on swallowing until finally, finally, I held the very last pink and green capsule between my fingers and downed it with the very last drop I hoped I would ever taste of tequila. My legs slowly slithered out from under me, and I pressed my face gratefully against the cold tile floor, staring up at Christmas through the window. The last thing I remembered was the clock striking 12, and a single stubborn snowflake clinging to the window pane, refusing to let go. I didn't know whether I would end up in heaven or hell, or at least in purgatory. Instead, I woke up in the county general, strapped to a gurney, covered in a foul mixture of charcoal and vomit, and retching uncontrollably. I knew it wasn't heaven, because they kept asking for my insurance. I suspected it wasn't hell either, because the attending physician had kind blue eyes and kept patting my hand. You're alive, he said. We found you just in time. You're a very lucky girl. And so I knew that it was hell after all. I hadn't made it. It would be years before I could even muster together the pills, the opportunity, the money to make another attempt on this grand of a scale. This was no gesture. It was genuine despair, and it had failed me. When I finally got the tubes out of my throat two days later, the nurse gave me a little pad to write on. Why was all I could think of to say. Why? 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 The sweet attending physician finally caught on. Why are you still alive? he asked. I nodded em emphatically. He flipped through my chart. All I know is that the paramedics were called on Christmas morning. It seems that a young man, a locksmith I think, came by to replace a broken pane of glass at your house and he found you unconscious. He saved your life. Now about these other injuries, the police have been wanting to talk to you about them. You've got some pretty nasty cuts and bruises down there. Do you know what I'm referring to? I nodded. Do you want to talk about it? I looked back up at the sympathetic sky blue eyes and shook my head slowly, sadly, and with absolute finality. If my assailant was also my savior, so be it. Perhaps my doubting father could also be my dearest love. I wondered why I, of all people, had never realized it before. The world is essentially bipolar, driven to extremes but defined by flux. Saints are always just a stumble away from sinners. Nothing is absolute, not even death. Despite the pink Xanax cloud that was fogging my mind, I knew I had hit on something important. All my life, I'd been fighting my own private battle of, of extremes with little success. 
so little that I was about to usher in the new year from a hospital bed in thick leather restraints. Manic depression was more than a mental disease. It was a mindset. It colored everything. The world should be one way or another, I thought. Men either made you safe or they made you bleed. If they weren't gods, they were villains. And it didn't matter if they came at you with bottles or they came at you with, di with disbelief. Either way, you bleed. It was rigid, unnatural thinking. Life was fuzzier than that. I thought of my father and the perfect smoke rings he used to blow at my command. The endless hours he spent rubbing my back when I had asthma in the middle of the night. And the thousand and one stories that he told me from his big brown chair, cigarette in one hand, whiskey in the other, and me on his lap in my heaven. It was impossible not to know that he loved me and that his love had conditions and that it was still love. The trick was remembering that enormous word, and. The nurse came in to adjust the IV and handed me a box of tissues on her way out. I was crying, my face and chest soaked with tears, tears of resignation, of reluctant compromise. Nothing was absolute, not even despair. I didn't want this life that I'd been given back, but it was a gift nonetheless, and Christmas gifts should always be opened and honored. I would put death aside a little longer for now, or at least until I understood why I was still alive. All right. That is the per the first chapter of Manic by Terry Chaney. I think I'm probably going to read a couple more chapters of that um, before maybe we switch to another one or go back. I don't know. I love this fucking book. I know it's not the most lighthearted story, but you really get a glimpse into what manic depression is like, what it's like being bipolar. Um, and that's something that is useful to everybody to know in case, you know, you ever deal with that yourself or you know someone who's dealing with that as well. So yeah, that is gonna wrap it up for this episode. Hope you guys are all hanging in there like the fucking cat on the little poster. And um, yeah. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.